Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This podcast features David Gran at Hennepin County Library, Southdale. David Gran is a number one New York Times bestselling author. His gripping debut, The Lost City of Z in 2009, follows the life and mysterious disappearance of Amazon explorer Percy Fawcett. It is a basis for the 2016 movie of the same name, starring Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson. Grant's follow-up, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes in 2010, is a 12-essay anthology. Each entry focuses on someone with an all-consuming passion in life that leads them into decidedly unusual and sometimes deadly situations. Grant solidified his reputation in 2017 with Killers of the Flower Moon, a shocking expose that documents one of the most sinister racial injustices in American history and the founding of the modern FBI. In his newest release, The White Darkness, Grant returns to the world of intrepid explorers. This lavishly illustrated book follows the story of Henry Worsley, a Special Forces veteran eager to retrace the steps of famed adventurer Ernest Shackleton and to do the legend one better by traversing the full length of the Antarctic on foot. The White Darkness hit shelves in October. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I have multiple mics, so this is going to be very exciting. <laughs> See if I can pull this off. And it's great to be here at the library. You know, for what I do, um, libraries are essential. They are the kind of source material that allows me to write books, providing archives and uh, secondary sources. And then they're also a way for these books and these stories to find an audience and reach people. So uh, anytime I visit a library, I feel incredibly grateful. Um, now, since I was young, uh, I've always had an interest in, in polar explorers. Uh, these people like Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton, who would venture into what is arguably the most brutal environment in the world in pursuit of some Arctic rail, uh, a place where temperatures can reach you know, minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, <coughs> where winds routinely gust at hurricane force, and where one misstep and you could plunge into a hidden crevasse. Now, as someone who hates the cold, I too prefer to read about them under a blanket, <laughs> maybe preferably by a nice warm fire. Um, and so when I came across a reference in a newspaper that a British man named Henry Worsley was planning in 2015 uh, to do what his hero, Ernest Shackleton, had failed to do a century earlier, and that is to walk from one side of Antarctica to the other, I was immediately drawn uh, to the story. Uh, Worsley's journey 
uh, which would pass uh, through the South Pole was more than 1,000 miles. And whereas uh, Shackleton, who had hoped to do this, had been part of a large expedition, uh, Worsley, who was then 55, planned to do it alone. And he planned to do it unsupported and unaided. What does that mean? It meant there would be no food caches planted along the route to forestall starvation. He would have to pull all of his supplies on a sled, and he would not have the aid of dogs, say, or kites. Um, nobody had ever dared this feat before. And I was drawn uh, to Henry's story not only because it was one of the greatest tests of human endurance, and not only because it contained, as I discovered during my research, a remarkable love story, uh, but also because I think it tells us something larger about the nature of leadership and about the human condition, even if, like me, you never plan uh, to become a polar explorer. Now, Worsley was a remarkable figure. He was a revered British Army officer. He was a talented painter and sculptor. He was a photographer who meticulously documented his travels. He was a collector of rare books. He was an amateur historian who had become a leading authority on the golden age of Antarctic exploration. And when he was growing up, uh, he had little interest in his classroom studies, uh, but he would often disappear into the library. And one day, he pulled a book uh, called The Heart of Antarctic from, uh, that was written by Ernest Shackleton. And he came across these lines in the opening of the book, and it said, Men go out into the void spaces of the world for various reasons. Some are actuated simply by a love of adventure. Some have the keen thirst for scientific knowledge, and others, again, are drawn away from the trodden past by the lure of little voices, the mysterious fascination of the unknown. And Worsley became captivated with all polar explorers, but especially with Ernest Shackleton, this handsome, brooding figure who seemed to embody the Shackleton family motto, which was, by endurance, we conquer. Now, Worsley was thrilled to discover that he had a special connection to Shackleton. One of his distant re relatives, Frank Worsley, uh, had been a member of, uh, a trusted member of one of Shackleton's earlier expeditions. Now, after graduating from high school, Worsley burned to become an explorer, but how do you become an explorer? And so instead, uh, he felt the burden of, of living up to his father and his family heritage. His father had been a great army officer who had risen to the highest ranks, and he entered the army. Now, Worsley soon began uh, to revisit the stories of Shackleton when he was in the army. Um, and he no longer looked upon them just as these kind of romantic tales. He wrote, Shackleton had become more than a hero to me. I looked upon him as a mentor. I was going into the business of leading men, and as a 19-year-old new to his trade, I believed that there was no better example to follow than his. Now, Worsley was not alone in his fascination with Ernest Shackleton's leadership style. Over the years, the explorer's methods have been studied by astronauts, uh, sports coaches, uh, political strategists, military commanders, business executives. Um, there's an entire subgenre of Shackleton literature with titles like Leading from the Edge, How to, Le How to Lead and Learn uh, and Guide People like Shackleton. Yet Shackleton was, in many ways, a failure. Uh, in 1901, he hoped, um, he joined an expedition led by Robert Falcon Scott, who hoped to become the first person to reach the South Pole. But freezing and starving 
Shackleton and Scott, another member of the party, were forced to turn back several hundred miles from the pole. Four years later, Shackleton mounted his own expedition for the South Pole, which was known as the Nimrod Expedition. Um, yet again, fearing for his men's welfare, he was forced to turn back. And after returning to England, he did not discuss his failure with his wife, uh, but he did tell her, um, better a live donkey than a dead lion. Now in 1911, the Norwegian explorer, uh, uh, Amundsen, uh, won the race to the South Pole, beating a party led by Scott by 33 days. When Scott got to the South Pole, he could see Amundsen's tent and a Norwegian flag that had been left behind. He described it as the worst place. And on his return journey, he and the four men who were with him all perished. Now afterward, Shackleton turned his restless attention to what he considered the last remaining polar pies, and that was a transantarctic crossing, crossing from one side of the continent to the other. Now because of the isolating, brutal conditions of Antarctica, it has become the perfect laboratory for testing human dynamics. How will you respond under such duress? History is studded with accounts of parties turning upon each other, members bickering and backstabbing. There have been cases of mutiny. There's even been cases of murder. So when Shackleton was recruiting uh, members for his party, he believed that they needed certain essential qualities. He described them thus. First, optimism. Second, patience. Third, endurance. Fourth, idealism, and fifth and last, he said, courage. And among the 28 members chosen uh, for the expedition was Henry Worsley's ancestor, Frank Worsley. Shackleton believed he perfectly embodied these traits, and uh, Frank Worsley was appointed captain of the party's ship. And on October 26, 1914, the wooden schooner, which had been rechristened the Endurance, after Shackleton's family motto, set out from Argentina carrying the men and three lifeboats. Ten days later, the expedition stopped at South Georgia, a glacier-covered island about 1,100 miles east of Cape Horn, Chile. Here you can see Frank Worsley up on that peak, peering down with a companion on their ship, uh, the Endurance. Now the island is deserted except for a, was then deserted except for a whaling station, and it was the party's last contact with civilization. From there, they sailed into the Weddell Sea toward Antarctica. Now the waters were packed with ice and they tried to carve a path through it for them. But on January 18, 1915, barely 100 miles from their intended base camp on the shore of Antarctica, the Endurance became encased in ice. With winter coming, and in winter it gets even colder, the sun disappears and there's 24 hours of darkness. Shackleton realized that they would be imprisoned on that ship until the November melt. While they, floated, while they floated through that winter darkness, Shackleton strove to keep his party united. His methods, especially at that time, were deemed as rather unorthodox and even radical, especially for someone who came out of a military uh, tradition. He ignored the stifling hierarchies of class, and of military rank. He made sure that all the men, no matter their status, participate in the same chores, 
they all received the same portions of food. And while he left no doubt who was in charge, everybody called him the boss, he participated in the same task and mingled easily with other members of the party. Now to ease the boredom uh, and dread while they were trapped for months on that ship, uh, he tried to encourage a playful atmosphere. They played regular games of cards and pokers. Uh, they had a phonograph and music would waft through the ship. They held musicals. Um, uh, they, and they, they even held musicals. Um, Frank Worsley wrote that Shackleton, quote, appreciated how deeply one man or small group of men could affect the psychology of the others. But Shackleton was powerless over the ice. On October 27th, the ship began to sink. The men were forced to abandon her. They quickly lowered their provisions onto the ice as well as their lifeboats. They were trapped and marooned on an ice floe more than a thousand miles from South Georgia Island, which was the closest place with any civilization. What's more, this was a period where ships didn't have radios. They could not issue an SOS. Shackleton gave a speech encouraging the men that they would survive, but privately wrote in his diary, I pray I can get them all back to civilization. Now, the, the ice was so thick and the water was so clogged, they couldn't yet launch the lifeboats. But they would need those lifeboats once the ice did melt. So initially, they actually tried to drag these boats. There were three of them. Each one of them weighed about a ton. And Shackleton, to set an example, said, we're going to have to get rid of all our personal items that aren't essential. And he took his most precious item, which was a Bible that the queen had inscribed for him before he set out. He laid it on the ice along with several gold sovereigns. And the other men soon followed suit, and they set off trying to drag that boat. But the boats were still too heavy, and after just a couple days, uh, they had to stop. And they realized they would have to remain um, trapped on that ice flow until it melted. And they pitched their tents. They named the camp Patience Camp. And to prevent mutiny, uh, Shackleton made sure to keep three of the most troublesome characters in his own tent where he could tend to their needs. Finally, on April 9, 1916, the ice finally began to break apart and they launched the lifeboats. Here you can actually see a picture. Um, after several days, they reached Elephant Island, a barren speck of land. It was still 800 miles from South Georgia Island and Shackleton realized that the party would not survive many in the party would not survive a longer trip. Uh, one person had to have five toes amputated on that island because of frostbite. And so we took only a few men, including Frank Worsley, in one of those boats. And here you can see them setting out, and they would try to go and see if they could get to South Georgia Island to get help. They crossed an open ocean in that little boat during hurricanes and tidal waves. The men were soaked and frostbitten, Shackleton doled out bits of food to keep them conscious. And eventually they did reach, um, they did reach uh, South Georgia Island. Although the, even when they got there, they still had to hike over an uncharted glacier more than 26 miles to reach the whaling station on the other side. By the time they got there, they looked like the survivors of an apocalypse. Shackleton was able to get a boat and he eventually returned and he was able to rescue every member of his party. They all got back alive. Now Shackleton may have failed in his mission to reach the South Pole 
or to then trek across Antarctica as they'd hoped to do in this expedition. But in a, in a modern age preoccupied with mastery, mastery over bureaucracies, over battlefields, and most of all over oneself, he became a revered figure for his leadership style. As one Polish explorer put it, when you're in a hopeless situation, when there seems to be no way out, get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. So I tell you this long story because you can't understand Henry Worsley without understanding Ernest Shackleton. He modeled his life after Shackleton. Um, when he entered the ar army uh, and became a commander of soldiers in the battle, he emulated those leadership styles. He ignored uh, hierarchies. Um, he participated uh, in the same chores as the lowest ranking soldiers. He always preached patience and optimism, two traits that Shackleton thought was essential. And he also always tried to stress that their welfare, the welfare of his party, was more important than anything else. Now, Worsley was drawn uh, to the Special Air Service, uh, an elite commando unit. Um, and just as there are kind of guidebooks and self-help books um, on Shackleton's leadership style, there are all these manuals uh, on how to master the SASs. And the SAS would be like the Delta Force in England. In fact, it was a prototype for the Delta Force here. Um, and there are these manuals on how to master the SAS's endurance techniques and quote-unquote practical leadership skills, including how to foster a team mind and the will to survive. In 1988, Worsley signed up for the SAS's selection course, which is so punishing that several people have died trying to pass the test. In fact, according to legend, after two candidates lost their lives during a test in 1981, the chief instructor remarked, death is nature Death is nature's way of telling you, you failed. <laughs> Worsley was among the few who passed, um, and he went on to serve two tours with the SAS. Now, around this time, in 1988, he met a woman named uh, Joanna Staten. Uh, and though she liked to travel, uh, she hated camping and the wintry, co wintry cold. Talk about opposites attracting, she told me. Christ, I'm a complete pavement girl. <laughs> Yet she loved the way that Worsley seemed to come from a bygone age, uh, believing unabashedly in ideals of courage and sacrifice. And he loved her brashness and the way she exposed his hidden self, always, always encouraging him to go out and pursue his dreams. They married in 1993 and eventually had two children, Max and Alicia. Now Worsley's fascination, meanwhile, had only deepened with Shackleton. He began to collect all sorts of what he called Shackletonia, which was memorabilia, any letters, diaries, anything that came that from either uh, Shackleton's pen or the pen from other members of the expedition, a napkin that may have been on the ship. Uh, his, his poor wife said uh, we lost, he lost a fortune on Shackletonia. Um, <laughs> but what he always wanted to do most of all, ever since he was young, was to carry out his own polar expedition. But for a long time he conceded I was afraid of the unknown, the planning, the training, the fundraising, and not least, the risk of failure. Finally, in 2008, at the age of 47, he decided to make an attempt. Um, that year was the centennial anniversary of Shackleton's Nimrod expedition to the South Pole. Um, and he planned to reenact the journey and he had teamed up 
with two other descendants of Shackleton's original crew. Will Gow, a 37-year-old, slightly pudgy, forgive me, Will, um, banker, who was Shackleton's great nephew, and Henry Adams, a 34-year-old scrawny shipping lawyer and the great-grandson of Jameson Boyd Adams, who was the second in command on the Nimrod expedition. Now, on the Nimrod expedition, Shackleton had come within 97 nautical miles of the South Pole, and Worsley and his companions would try to reach that point on January 9, 2009, exactly 100 years later. Then they would press on to the South Pole, completing, in Gao's words, unfinished family business. Now, the three men might have had exploration in their genes, but they had no exploring experience. Um, and they began a ruthless exercise regimen. They dragged tires across open fields. Uh, they went to Greenland, where they learned to camp and live on the ice. Like a general developing a plan of attack, Worsley spent hours poring over maps, laying out a precise route for the expedition. The more he studied Antarctica, the more forbidding it seemed. The continent is nearly five and a half million square acres. That's larger than Europe. What's more, in the winter, these coastal areas freeze over and it doubles in size. Approximately 98% of Antarctica is covered in ice, which contains about 70% of all the fresh water on Earth. Yet Antarctica is classified as a desert because there is so little precipitation. It is the driest continent. It is also the highest continent with an elevation of seven, average elevation of 7,500 feet. It is, of course, the windiest continent with gusts recorded more than 200 miles per hour. And it is the coldest with temperatures reaching below 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It is more like Mars than like Earth. Now, Worsley and Gal planned to begin their journey south of New Zealand on Ross Island. They were going to begin right here. Ross Island is the largest floating body of ice in the world. It's about the size of France. They would trek this journey about 400 miles. Then they had to get to, get to the polar plateau in the South Pole. They had to cross over the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, which run across the continent here. Um, those mountains rise nearly 15,000 feet. Shackleton, during his expedition, had found one of the only passable routes. Um, which is a frozen, frozen glacier, it looks like a highway, cutting through the mountains, uh, which he called Beardmore, the Beardmore Glacier. Um, and it's completely treacherous, it's pocked with crevasses. Um, at that time, only 12 people had walked or traversed the glacier, the same number that had walked on the moon. And several of those, including members of Scott's expedition, never returned. Shackleton uh, Worsley referred to the Beardmore Glacier as his nemesis. By October of 2008, Worsley and his colleagues were ready to embark on their expedition. Worsley's children had painted his skis with messages, including by Endurance We Conquer, and my favorite, push it, fat ass. Um, <laughs> even though Henry had been telling Joanna, his wife, for years, about the glories of Antarctica, it still seemed to her like the most dreadful place on Earth. Yet she believed that, to borrow Thomas Pynchon's words, everyone has an Antarctic, some place people seek to find answers about themselves. In the case of her husband, though, 
that place was Antarctica itself. Um, and so she gave her blessing to the venture, even, even though it threatened to take the life of the man she so dearly loved. She drove him to the airport where she began to cry, and they embraced, and he echoed the words that Shackleton had told his wife, better a live donkey than a dead lion. In November, Worsley and his team were flown to their starting point on Ross Island. My God, we've made it, Worsley said, stamping on the ground. Looking for a place to camp, they trekked onto a ridge on the island when Worsley suddenly came to a halt. There in front of him, in a shallow basin of ice, was a hut. He knew instantly what it was. It was the hut that Shackleton had built in 1908 and stayed during the winter before he had set out on the Nimrod expedition for the South Pole. They hurried over to the hut. They could see the items from Shackleton's expedition. It looked as if members of Shackleton's party had just stepped away and might return at any moment. Henry Adams excitedly uh, hurried over and found the bunk where his great-grandfather had slept. Worsley scoured every recesses of the room. Afterwards, he said he could not get any closer to his men mentor, and there was nothing else left to do but to walk to the pole. The next morning, the men packed up their things. Worsley estimated that the journey would take nine weeks, and they faced the same predicament that had bedeviled polar explorers for generations. They could haul only so many supplies on their sleds, a situation that left them vulnerable to starvation. Each of the men was limited to about 310 pounds, which included the weight of their sled. Worsley carefully stored on the sled the item that he thought was most essential, and that was a, a satellite phone with solar-powered batteries. It would allow them to call a colleague in London each night and record an audio dispatch uh, updating their followers on their progress, which would be posted on their website. But more importantly, it would allow them to call for a search and rescue mission, a plane, if they needed it, uh, what Worsley referred to as the most expensive taxi ride in the world. Worsley also brought with him one other item that he considered precious. He tucked it in his pocket, and that was the compass that Shackleton had carried on his expedition. Shackleton's granddaughter had given it to Worsley, hoping that this time it would reach the South Pole. Now for Worsley, commanding the expedition was far trickier than commanding soldiers in battle. Here, his authority was not assumed, it was not official, it was granted, and he had no more experience as a polar explorer than his two companions, yet he felt the immeasurable weight, that burden, of being responsible for their lives. And he formed with them a pact before they set out. He said there would be no egos, no pride, and if someone was unwell, they would always help each other. At 10 a.m., the hour that Shackleton had set out, the men leaned into their harnesses and began their trek. Worsley made sure that the men never separated and stayed together and he underscored the advice that another polar explorer had told him. Get wet and you die. Sometimes they marched 16 hours a day and covered as much as 14 miles. 
They crossed the endless wind-sculpted ways of ice, which are known as Tertugi. They literally look like, it looks like an ocean just freezes over. They were burning between 6,000 and 8,000 calories a day. They made sure to eat fatty foods like chocolate and peanuts and ghee butter. Even so, they began to rapidly lose weight. About two weeks into their journeys, they found themselves in a violent windstorm. Now, this is where we're going to get into some technological excitement here. <laughs> the audio doesn't work, but we're going to see if, it, if, we, if you can hear it this way. So uh, where is it recorded? The sounds of the wind, which could reach up to um, 100 miles per hour. Did you hear it at all? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> now, um, they found themselves uh, pinned down in a tent. Um, and what happens is, again, it's not that it snows so much, because there's not a lot of precipitation, but the wind kicks up all the ice particles and creates these constant whiteouts. And so the tents would just become submerged in ice. And um, they found themselves pinned down for two days. Um, and Henry Adams, uh, recorded uh, one of these audio dispatches during the storm for the tent. Let's see, again, this is a little bit of an experiment, but let's see if it works. Here we are, tent bound again. It's a strange predicament, really. We're in the middle of hundreds of miles of ice, no one around, really only a few people have ever been here on foot at least in the whole of time. Howling winds all about us, yet we're comfortable, we're well fed, we're in good spirits, just biding our time, trying to be patient until the weather eases so we can get out. And almost a hundred years ago, around ten miles from where we sit at the moment, Ella Scott and his men perishing slowly in appalling conditions, and it's a very, very sobering thought for us. Uh, after uh, several days, uh, they, they, the storm passed. They had to literally dig out. They were like prisoners trying to escape digging through the ice because the ice just submerged the whole tent. Um, when they were trapped in that tent, though, what is important is that uh, Worsley tried to do what Shackleton do. He tried to create a playful atmosphere during that time of dread. And you can hear Henry Adams. He sounds pretty upbeat given, given the conditions. They would play poker. Uh, they would read. Uh, they would read aloud passages from uh, Shackleton's diaries. Um, uh, they started a whiskey club. They brought a little flask and they would share whiskey. The Whiskey Appreciation Society, uh, as they called it. Um, and then eventually they got out, and the storm relented. And by the fourth week of their journey, this is now mid-December. They had made it across the Ross Ice Shelf. Not long after, they reached Worsley's. Nemesis, the Beardmore Glacier. Every way they turned, it seemed, there was a new obstacle. There were boulders of ice. There were snow bridges over crevasses. Some of the crevasses were wide enough, as Worsley said, to swallow a car whole. Worsley, they had to rope themselves up. And uh, Worsley would lead, trying to take a path. He would take his pole. And with each step, he would jam it in front of the ice in front of him. Sometimes the ice would give way and open and crack open, and he would peer down into a bottomless chasm, a dark chute into the netherworld. 
One day, um, after, uh, after uh, a long day of trekking, uh, he went to get his sleeping bag. Um, and when he was getting it, he suddenly plunged through a crevasse. Uh, he was holding on diagonally from the sides, and Henry Adams rushed over and pulled him out. Each time you escape, Worsley wrote, you sensed your luck was running out. Now on December 24th, after nine days of climbing, they reached the top of the glacier. But they soon confronted the most brutal conditions yet, hurricane force gales on a daily basis, and a wind chill temperature of minus 60 degrees. The cold air singed the men's throats as if they were breathing fire. Wurzy kept a vigilant, uh, vigilant eye on his companions, who were unrecognizable from the young professionals who had set out with them not long ago from England. Their skin clung to their skulls, and their eyes were sunken. They had wild beards and untamed hair that gleamed with ice. Because of the whiteouts, Adams was suffering from motion sickness. This is one of the stranger things. When you're in these whiteouts, you literally can't tell which way is up or down. And you would often take a step thinking that, you know, this is in front of you. You put your foot up and you'll fall over because you just can't tell. Um, Adams would become uh, so motion sick, he would throw up. Uh, he described it this way to me. It was like being trapped inside a ping pong ball on a boisterous ocean. Now, Worsley tried to stay upbeat and comfort the others. He helped with their sleds and gave them Shackleton's compass to carry as if it was pixie dust. But by December 31st, it was Worsley who was suffering and struggling to keep pace. His body could not maintain sufficient body fat. My days were fast turning into a raw, bare-knuckle fight against fatigue, he wrote. Still, he forged on. And Adams said Worsley relied, generally speaking, the way he would get through this was on force of mind. He was almost in awe of Worsley's power of kind of mental toughness. And on January 9th, Exactly 100 years after Shackleton and his party, they reached the 97-mile mark. Now, the men looked around them at this place that had filled their dreams, that had lured them almost to their demise, and what can they see? Absolutely nothing but barren ice, windswept ice stretching to the horizon. Their grail was no more than a geographical data point in this ice scape. They were so cold they couldn't really even linger. But Worsley hurried and they arranged a photograph to emulate the photograph that Shackleton had taken when they reached that point. And you could see Worsley with his hands clasped behind his back in the same position and the same way that Shackleton had clasped his hands behind his back. Now, Worsley kept thinking in that moment about the terrible quandary that Shackleton had faced at that point. Shackleton knew that he could reach the South Pole 100 years earlier and become the first person at that time to ever reach it. But he knew it would deplete much of the food that his party would need on the return journey. And he was concerned about the welfare of his men who were already fading. And so he made what Worsley considered the most astonishing decision in the history of exploration. That's how Worsley described it. Shackleton turned back. And get, uh, at that moment, Worsley turned to Gow and Adams. He said, I simply cannot contemplate them just turning around 
after coming all this way and heading back the way they had just come. Worsley and his companions continued onward, and on January 18th, after 66 days of trekking, they could see a, U, a U.S. scientific research station and the refuse of civilization scattered on the ice. Garbage. <laughs> they had reached the South Pole. Adams called Worsley an absolute bang-on leader, and Worsley believed that they had mastered the seemingly impossible by adhering to the central lesson of Shackleton, by endurance we conquer. Before turning to go, Worsley took out Shackleton's compass, lifted the lid, and let the needle spin to a stop. You can actually hear Worsley giving a recording in that moment. He's, he's a little bit harder to hear, um, but let's see if you can make out his voice. that he would ever go back again. Um, but gradually, he began to hear again the lure of those little voices. In his commonplace book, he wrote down a quote from the Norwegian polar explorer Nansen that seemed to address his own compulsion to subject himself to more suffering. Why? On the account of the great geographical discoveries, the important scientific results? Oh no. That will come later for the few specialists this is something all can understand, a victory of human mind and human strength over the dominion and powers of nature, a deed that lifts us above the great monotony of daily life, the triumph of the living over the stiffened realm of death. In 2011, Worsley led a second party uh, to the South Pole, this time following Amundsen's route. During the journey, he had a companion with him named Lou Rudd, it was Lou Rudd's first uh, experience uh, exploring uh, in, 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 in Antarctica. He was tired, he was exhausted. Worsley had gone ahead of him, and he couldn't quite see him through the, the whiteout, but he saw something in front of him carved in the ice. He was used to all the different ice formations, but this one he couldn't quite recognize. At first he thought it was a mirage, because he was so tired. And then as he got closer, he saw this message that Worsley had carved in the ice, I am the Antarctic. And he thought it so perfectly captured uh, Worsley's spirit and also his playfulness to kind of encourage his companion who he knew uh, was suffering in that moment. Uh, Worsley had become the first person to trace the two classic routes to the South Pole. He was healed as one of the great polar explorers of our time and a pioneer of the possible. And in October of 215, he bid farewell to his family 
and he embarked on his most perilous quest to walk across Antarctica alone. Not only would it be Worsley's longest, hardest, and most punishing quest, he would have to survive entirely on his own wits. He would have to be the leader of himself and himself alone. This time, Worsley's route uh, was to begin on the Berkner Island. This is an ice-bound chunk of rice over here. And he would trek to the South Pole. It's about 570 nautical miles, um, which is nautical miles a little bit longer than a mile. It'd be more than 600 miles, I think. Once he got to the South Pole, uh, hauling all his supplies alone, no food caches, he would get to the South Pole, and then he would reverse the route that he had gone on with Adams and Gao, reversing that journey, going over the Transantarctic Mountains, and then down to the Ross Ice Shelf, which was, um, again, the whole journey was more than 1,100 miles. Now, he was determined to finish before February. He thought the expedition would take him nearly 80 days, um, but he had to finish before February because that's when winter sets in. Uh, at that point, a rescue plane cannot land in Antarctica. Uh, it becomes uh, too perilous. At that point, there would be no exit. Now, after arriving in Antarctica uh, that November, Worsley wrote in his diary, so happy to be back, adding, many days of struggle ahead, but a glorious start. He described Antarctica as the best place on Earth right now. Then, as on Shackleton's expedition, everything began to go wrong. He was engulfed in endless whiteouts. He recorded uh, the awful conditions. Virtually every part of him was in agony. His arms and legs throbbed, his back ached, his feet were blistered, his toes were discolored, his fingers had started to become numb with frostbite. In his diary he wrote, I'm worried about my fingers, one tip of little finger already gone, and all others very sore. One of his front teeth had broken off, and the wind whistled through the gap. He had lost more than 40 pounds and was on the verge of collapse. Yet he had never failed before, and was never one to give up. He had always adhered to the motto, by endurance we conquer, which was painted on his sled. He would also repeat the unofficial motto of the SAS, which was always a little further, always a little further. What's more, he was nearly at the end of his journey, despite all the obstacles. He was so close to what he called a rendezvous with history. Yet how much further could he press on before the cold consumed him? Whenever Worsley faced a perilous situation, and he was now in more peril than he'd ever been, he would ask himself one question. What would Shacks do? What would Shackleton do? And that is the question that the book explores. What would Shackleton do? What is the true meaning of leadership? Is it to never give up? Or is it to accept and reckon with our human limitations? It is a question that generals and politicians and business executives and strategists and athletes face. And it is a question that we all confront in our own lives with our own personal Antarctica. But in the case of Worsley, his life would depend on the answer.
With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for David Graham and his work. In this book club, we'd like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member noting that David Graham often retraces the steps of the subjects he writes about. Did he do the same for The White Darkness? You know, it's interesting. This is the first time I did not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I did go through the Amazon uh, for The Lost City of Z, which is a little bit hard to believe. Um, uh, but I did not. And when you read the book, you'll kind of, I think, understand a little bit why. Um, but I did not uh, in this case. And for me, one of the hardest things was wrapping my mind around Antarctica as a place because its geography is so unusual. I was fortunate, though, to have Worsley meticulously documented his expeditions the same way Shackleton did. And so I had diaries and audios and videos. Um, and in some ways, I felt closer to Worsley on his journey than I'd ever felt to any subject I've ever written about. This audience member asked if Henry Worsley's wife also believed as strongly in Henry's mission. I don't want to speak for her in that because I'm always so careful. And I don't know if I ever actually asked her that question. I think, um, I think she, uh, she knew how important it was to him. Uh, she used to joke that um, uh, Henry's only mistress was Antarctica. And um, she knew he needed that and she knew that was part of him. So I think in that sense she always supported him. But I think she was very, very, as she told me, worried about that last expedition. He was 55. He's doing it alone. Doing it alone in many ways is much harder because, I mean, for so many reasons. I mean, and I described some of it in the book. I mean, you just, like, he would hit, like, a, at one point he, he was pulling his sled and he had to climb up, uh, um, you know, a, a, a mountain of ice, basically. And he tries to pull the sled and he just can't pull it. There's no one there to help him. And he knows if he just stays there, he'll freeze. So he basically has to unpack from the sled much of what he has, climb up the mountain, get to the top, go back down. I describes in his diary all day, that's all he did, just faring up and down these 200, it was about a 200, 300 foot wall of ice. Get to the top exhausted and go back down. I had no one to help him break, break track, which is much harder. When you're with a group, um, it's easier if the person in front, it's a little bit like if someone's running a marathon and they break your wind. Well, in Antarctica, if someone has broken the ice for you and set a path for your skis, it's much easier. Not much easier, but it's easier. Um, and he didn't have that. So there were so many things, but I think the hardest thing, now Henry wanted that. He wanted that challenge. He, he, was a, he wasn't a religious man, but he was very spiritual about the Antarctica. On that first expedition uh, that I described uh, fairly extensively with Will Gow and uh, Henry Adams, he would get to his tent in the evening after they would go on these trek for 15 hours, and then they would cook up the, you know, the little gas stove and melt some ice, and then he would say, all right, mates, I'm going to go for a walk. And they would look at him like he was nuts. But he, would, he wanted to go for this stroll. It's almost like a pilgrimage, to be alone in this space. He really he felt the spirituality of Antarctica, as Henry Adams said. Um, so he wanted to do that. He wanted that challenge. But he also, you don't have the benefit when you're alone. And you describe this, you know, in some ways, the biggest challenge is the crevasse. If you fall into a crevasse, there's no one there to help you. But um, I think an even greater challenge is you don't have anyone to eyeball you. Um, and kind of say what kind of condition you're in. And also, Worsley was always so concerned about the welfare of his mates. 
um, he would never do anything to put them in jeopardy. But when you're alone, you might be more willing to take a chance. So uh, there were many challenges that going alone made it uh, you know, something that his wife really was very worried about. This question is if David Grand read a lot of adventure stories growing up. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely grew up um, reading adventure stories. I mean, Jack London and... Um, uh, and then early on, uh, started to read some of the, you know, kind of adventure stories like, uh, you know, even Conan Doyle's The Lost World, things like that. Uh, it tended to be more novels than nonfiction when I was young. Um, and I do think it kind of stirred, always kind of stirred my imagination, these people. In some ways, they seem so different than me, but I'm drawn to them. This audience member asks about Henry Worsley's children. His children, um, they're amazing. That is the most, they're an amazing family. I really feel, I always feel privileged to write about so many of the people I write about. Um, it's one of the blessings of being a reporter because that is the one thing you hold in common with these people. You are an explorer. You're, I'm pretty shy. I'm pretty um, not that social. Doing my, but reporting sets me out into the world to meet these people who are doing these wonderful things. And it's like an endless education. His family is, are some of the most remarkable piece, people uh, I've ever encountered for so many, for so many reasons. Um, in some ways, I think if you read the book, uh, Worsley is often described as a hero. But I think you'll find uh, the family um, is kind of remarkably heroic. Another audience member asked how David Grant became interested in writing this story. I read this uh, newspaper story uh, when he was um, uh, setting out, or a little bit before he set out on that last expedition, um, and that kind of just kind of immediately drew me drew me to it. Um, and as I got into it, um, there were lots of things that drew me to. One is just an extraordinary test of human endurance, like what would compel someone to do that? Again, I would never do that. <laughs> and uh, um, so it's like, it's trying to understand what, what compels people. Um, there's also, for me, especially after Killers of the Flower Moon, which for those of you who haven't read it, but deals with a real kind of deceptive form of love in which people pretend to love you while they're plotting to kill you. I mean, it's really the, just absolutely awful. Um, this had such a beautiful love story between him and Joanna and, and, and this place. And so uh, for me, that also drew me to it. Um, and for me, you know, it's also every story is different. And some people are like, well, what has that has to do with anything? You know, each story I do is so different. But I think they hopefully each reveals something about the human condition. Um, you know, what we try to do with ourselves in the short period of time we have on this earth and what we try to make of it. Um, I think Henry was trying to figure out part of the riddle of his existence, um, and uh, and I think we tend to gloss over our understanding of Shackleton. We always like to think of Shackleton in these self-help books as a way to triumph, and I think it misses really one of the most profound lessons of Shackleton, which is coming to terms with our human limitations, that we can't conquer every place, least of all Antarctica. And that, I think, is one of the hardest things for us all to reckon with. But I think it's a much more profound and deeper lesson. And I think that's partly the thing that Worsley is trying to reckon with. Um, and that really interested me. This question is about what happened to Shackleton after he returned from his failed expedition. It's interesting because 
Well, let me give you the, the very specific thing. He set out eventually after the war. Some of the people in that expedition actually went and served in the war, and some died very sadly, tragically. Um, and, and, uh, but then he pl planned uh, another expedition. Um, it was going to be a more coastal kind of expedition. Uh, Frank Worsley uh, went with him. Um, and on the ship, when they were near South Georgia, he had a heart attack. Um, it wasn't they weren't trapped or in, a, in a, any kind of perilous situation. Uh, he was fairly young, and I, I'm blanking out how old he was at this moment. I want to say 47, but I, I don't know. That's I don't know. I'm making that up. Um, but in any case, but but I do think the 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 obviously the the strenuous nature of his early expeditions that probably oh. had some impact on him. Uh, and he was actually buried on South Georgia Island, uh, and uh, they built a, a cairn for them. And Worsley actually went and visited that. You know, heroes tell us often as much about ourselves as about those individuals who we revere, who we choose to revere and why. And so after Shackleton's expedition, and I didn't get into this, but I do in the book, um, you know, Shackleton had failed to achieve his goals. And uh, in many ways, he was kind of obscured for a while in history. It's hard to believe now, when we, given how revered he is, but he was. He was kind of uh, overshadowed by Scott, and Scott's kind of had written in his diary before he died, you know, we shall die like gentlemen. And during the war, it's kind of both the period of the, both the, the beginning of the decline of the British Empire, but also the sense of kind of sacrifice, he became this kind of martyr figure and this great hero. And then over time, as we, as our societies change and we became much more interested in kind of how we master our environments, how we master ourselves. Um, there was a lot of revision history that showed Scott as kind of a moody, tumultuous leader who maybe made mistakes in planning. Um, and suddenly it was Shackleton who became the figure who was so revered. And clearly Scott is still someone who we all know of, but there aren't management books that are being taught at Harvard Business School about Scott. They're being taught about Shackleton. Our last question of the night is what David Grant is working on next. Uh, the next one, I'm working on a new book. Um, it's very different. Um, it's uh, it's a, naval, a naval story about a shipwreck and a mutiny uh, and a shipwreck on an island that basically descends into Lord of the Flies. It's the opposite of how Shackleton kept his party together. <laughs> Thank you. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Southdale event with David Graham. Make sure to catch our last Club Book podcast of the season with Deborah Bloom at Dakota Public Library Galaxy. Best-selling author and Pulitzer winner Deborah Bloom is one of America's foremost science writers. Her new book, The Poison Squad, tells the surprising, sometimes stomach-churning, story of the unsung heroes we have to thank for today's food industry safety protocols. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free club book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make club book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, 
where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.